And if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to this great chapter in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this morning we will consider together verses 29 through 34, but we shall read, first of all, verse 12 for connection then on to verse 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, resurrection of the dead, life on the line. Verse 12, now, if Christ is proclaimed or preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers and sisters, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And we'll stop there. And may God bless the reading of his precious word. Let us pray together. Now, our Heavenly Father, we have lifted up our voices this morning in adoration and in praise of you, our great God, of what you are able to do and what you have done for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. And the one thing we have been fixing our hearts and minds on in this great chapter of 1 Corinthians is that our Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and therefore we too shall rise also. We desire above all to know the consequences of this great doctrine for us today as we live, as we go about our daily work, as we enter into life, as we live day by day. We pray that we might see the value and the preciousness of this great truth that is for all of us, and that we might live in the light of it. So we thank you and praise you for your word. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would send it forth with great power into our minds and into our hearts that we would understand the Scriptures. We desire this so that our Lord Jesus Christ may be praised in our midst and to you be all the glory. These things we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Your life on the line. Now, you know, the Apostle Paul has been providing us in chapter 15 with a whole range of arguments that he has laid out and is going to continue in verses 29 through 34, a long list of arguments to prove that the dead rise. He doesn't necessarily say the dead in Christ will rise, though of course he means that, and he ultimately, and we know, all the dead shall rise. 
We know within the passage that he does say, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who believe. And then comes the end. And so, yes, this is a passage for every single person, but certainly it is a privilege for us as believers to, as the Apostle Paul unfolds this doctrine to this great church that existed 2,000 years ago, that were having difficulties and struggles in their midst. They were just an ordinary church. And the Apostle Paul reveals their sins so that he might declare ultimately the beautiful, the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that overcomes all of our sins and our sinfulness. What a wonderful thing the gospel is, isn't it? The capstone of the gospel is nothing less than Jesus risen from the dead. And so this is a chapter that is all about this subject, the resurrection of the dead. In fact, for the Apostle Paul, his entire life, his entire ministry is predicated, is built upon this doctrine, this doctrine of the resurrection. In fact, even more particularly, your faith, my faith, is built on the same doctrine. Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Jesus is raised from the dead. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Preaching is a waste of time. And we've made God out to be a liar, Paul says in these verses. So resurrection is absolutely crucial to the faith, to being a Christian. And we are to live, every one of us, in the light of this great doctrine. And we've been discovering, as we've been going through the passage, some of the reasons that the Apostle Paul gives as to why the, res- the dead shall rise again. So, the Apostle Paul has, has placed his entire apostolic ministry upon this great doctrine, not only the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead, but that all the dead, the Corinthians, and ourselves, and all will rise from the dead. So it's very important for the Corinthians, isn't it? It's important because the Apostle Paul is answering questions. There are things happening in Corinth. And so he raises questions, for instance, verse 12, verse 35, that discuss this doctrine. And he's asking these questions because he wants to prove that the dead rise. And then later on, verse 35 onwards, he wants to talk about what kind of body the dead have, and so on. So these Corinthians, they've believed the gospel. They received the gospel that Paul preached to them, and they believed it. In fact, If you go back to the book of Acts and you read in chapter 18, verse 11, you discover that the Apostle Paul spent 18 months in the city of Corinth. So it wasn't like a short little visit. He whirled in and whirled out after a few weeks. No, the Apostle has spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth, planting the church, preaching the gospel, and now this congregation that he is very familiar with, these believers that he is the father of their faith, these Christians, the Apostle Paul, has been proclaiming the gospel to them. And so he's been preaching to them, he's been teaching them for this great period of time. And of course, you remember from Acts chapter 18, God gave him great success. God blessed the preaching of his word. And that's true whenever the gospel is shared, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, God blesses his word. And so you remember how the Apostle was concerned about whether he should stay in Corinth. And the Lord encouraged him, came to him in a vision in the night, and told him, don't be afraid. 
and go on preaching and do these things. And the reason he said that was because I have many people or many in this city who are my people. So you stay in Corinth, Paul, and you preach the gospel. You share your life and share the ministry which is based upon Jesus risen from the dead. I wonder how many people God has in this little city of ours, Sarasota. That even now, He says of Sarasota, I have many who are my people in that city. So live your Christian life in such a way that it is beneficial and is God-honoring and Christ-glorifying so that they see Christ in you. For who knows? Certainly that is how grace comes through the living of the Christian life and through the preaching and the sharing of the gospel. And Paul certainly has experienced that. He knows what that's like. Now, let me remind you. He began, 1 Corinthians, has he not? In verse 1, by reminding the Corinthians of the gospel. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So he tells them right up front that he's going to remind them of this gospel that they had believed and the good news that they had received. And what specifically was it that they believed? Because the gospel is multifaceted. Well, you can see, he tells them in verse 3, that he had delivered to them as of first importance what he himself had received, and what was that? Number one, Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Number two, he was buried. Number three, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's what they believed. That's what Paul preached to them. That was his message. You remember how the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians as he was writing in the earlier chapters, that I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him what? Crucified. And that is not just the end of the Gospel, because resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of our Lord took place. That's what they believed. That's what they received. So he spent time, didn't he, delivering this glorious gospel. Now, you know the one thing I think every Christian understands when they become a Christian? That the moment they start living the Christian life, the moment they start witnessing or sharing the gospel, that there will be and there is bound to be opposition to that. Opposition to your life and opposition to this gospel. So the Apostle understands from his own perspective that there is, for himself, opposition, suffering that takes place in the Christian life. And he is instructing the Corinthians in this passage that their lives also, because they believe in the resurrection, are on the line. Just as your life and my life, because I believe and you believe in this resurrection, are also on the line. We face consequences as a result of what we believe. This gospel that we say we believe. So the Apostle Paul understands that. He himself has experienced great opposition in his apostolic ministry to his preaching. He suffered for Jesus. He suffered for the gospel. He suffered for the faith. Now the one thing we know about the Apostle Paul, back in Acts chapter 9, when when his call and his commission came through the Lord Jesus Christ, that Ananias, who was the instrument that God used to go to Saul of Tarsus and tell him what was happening. 
that Ananias was afraid to go because I know how much your saints in Jerusalem have suffered at the hands of this man. And God said to him, or Jesus said to him, you go because I'm going to show Saul of Tarsus how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And from that moment of conversion, the Apostle Paul lived his Christian life in the light of and in, and in anticipation of great suffering as a consequence of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The capstone being that Jesus is raised from the dead. And therefore Christians feel the repercussions of that. So suffering and opposition is all part and parcel of representing Christ or of believing in the Lord Jesus. Now this passage, verse 29 through verse 34, is going to unfold some of that to us. Now let me remind you again also, because it's important to remind ourselves, notice Paul says, I would remind you, verse 1. So I want to remind you of the arguments that the Apostle has given in these verses as he has led up to where he is now, and we'll look at the argument we find here. First of all, the opening 11 verses... That's a historical argument, isn't it? That Jesus is risen from the dead. How do we know Jesus is risen from the dead? Not just because there's no body in the tomb. That's an important part. So how do we know, Paul says to the Corinthians, that Jesus is risen from the dead? He tells us there are two ways. Number one, the Scriptures foretold it. That's the Old Testament. So the prophets wrote about the resurrection of Christ. We know from the Scriptures that Jesus would rise from the dead. Number one argument. Number two, he says there are many witnesses, including himself, who have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament promised it, foretold it, and witnesses have seen Jesus alive and have borne testimony to that. That argument, by the way, verses 1 through 11, is absolutely essential to the entire chapter. Because the doctrine of the resurrection of all the dead and what kind of body they have is all built on the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and himself has a new body. That's the first argument, historical. The second argument comes from verses 12 through 19, the logical argument. Now, you remember, it's very important to understand that this chapter is also based on questions that Paul is answering, that he poses and that he answers. So, for example, in verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say? Question. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So, he's just proved in verses 1 through 11 that Jesus is raised from the dead. So, how can, verse 12, next argument, how can you say, or some of you say, that there's no such thing or there is no resurrection of the dead? So, his argument from logic, or a logical argument, is built on all of these if clauses or if statements. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then our preaching is vain. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, your faith is futile. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, faith is empty, and so on. And these are all the if clauses, and he just logically, step by step, unfolds the folly, the foolishness of those if clauses, that they are not true. So he wants to show us that we have believed, or we do, the Corinthians, that they do believe and have believed and ought to believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, if it is true that the dead are not raised, or if Christ is not raised, 
then verse 19 would be true of you and true of me. If I only have hope in this life, in Christ, and He's not raised from the dead, then I must be of all people the most miserable or the most to be pitied. In other words, why would you believe in Jesus if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? So that's what he answers. That's his logical arguments. Thirdly, in verses 20 through 28, he gives us the theological arguments. He told the Corinthians that the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection, that the resurrection when it occurs has order to it. And the order of the resurrection has consequences and sequence to it. And we considered that last week. In other words, there's a plan. There's a purpose, right? What's the plan? Christ first, the first fruits. Then, at His coming, those who have believed. Then comes the end. That's the order. That's the plan. That's the sequence. But the end only comes when all the enemies have been destroyed and, the de and death, as we saw last week, is the last enemy that shall be destroyed and then everything is subject to Jesus and then Jesus makes everything subject to the Father, to God Himself. For what purpose? Well, you notice verse 28, that God may be all in all. So notice, if you have hope only in this life, miserable. First argument, based on the resurrection of Jesus. Second argument, that the resurrection of the dead is true because ultimately it's going to give God all the praise and all the glory and Jesus, by virtue being the first fruits, the first, then ushers in a procedure, a program, that ends in glory, with everything subject to God. God is all in all. So we have all these arguments, right? People die, he says, because of sin through Adam, but people live because Jesus is risen from the dead, the theological arguments that he gave us. And so we have all of these arguments so far, up to verse 28, proving the resurrection of the dead. Now we come to this final argument in verse 29 through 34. What is it? What is Paul's argument? It is an argument from practice. It is an argument from practice. I don't say it's a practical argument. It's an argument from practice. Some of the practice of the Corinthians and the practice of the Apostle Paul and the practice of you and me and believers. Now the first thing I want you to notice in this argument, the argument from practice, is look first of all at verse 29 and then verse 32. Otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Wow, good questions, Paul. What on earth do you mean? Right? Then verse 32, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I have fought with wild beasts or beasts at Ephesus? What are these wild beasts that Paul is talking about? So the first thing we ask ourselves is, what is this practice of being baptized on behalf of the dead, verse 29? And secondly, what are these wild beasts that he talks about in Ephesus in verse 32? That's the first thing you should just take note of, right? These are questions to be answered. They're important questions to be answered. The second thing I want you to take notice of are the questions Paul has in the text. So he does have a question in verse 29, right? What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Or at the end of the verse, why are people baptized on their behalf? In verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? 
and verse 32, what do I gain if I have fought with these wild beasts? So in the context, the Apostle Paul is asking questions. He's asking questions because he wants to show something, reveal something, the practice of what is happening, what was being done, and what he himself engaged in. That's the second thing. So the first thing, right, is to understand the questions and see them. The third thing is to see that Paul actually is asking these questions with a purpose and a reason. And then thirdly, I want you to notice that it is the practice of some Corinthians in verse 29 to be baptized on behalf of others. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, if that was just something that was occurring outside in the world, I don't think the Apostle Paul would have concerned himself with it. He would have left it there. He wouldn't have troubled the church with, with outside practices because there was a multiplicity of pagan practices out there that he could have occupied himself with. But we're not, we don't find that. So I take verse 29 because he's seeking to prove something as something that is perhaps being done, as we shall see, by the Corinthians, some of the Corinthians, about being baptized on a dead person's behalf. And then, in the text, we have to ask ourselves or see what was the practice of the Apostle Paul himself when he talks about fighting Wild beasts, or why am I in danger every hour? And what does he mean by I die daily, and, or I die every day? So the entire passage, or the point of the passage, is to show you and me, to show the Corinthians, that this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is a very reasonable doctrine because it affects how you live. It affects your practice. It affects Paul's practice. It affects the Corinthians' practice. So, look at verse 29. The practice. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now remember, this is predicated on the question of verse 12, right? If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That's what he's proving. That there is a resurrection of the dead. But how can some of you Corinthians believe that there is no resurrection of the dead? So, verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all, which is in line with verse 12, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, you know, there have been numerous interpretations of this verse. I have read some commentators who say there's, a, there's at least about 30 interpretations of this verse. And then I've read some who said there's more than 200 interpretations of this verse. Be that as it may, I'm only interested in the verse. Right? Why is the verse there? It's a good question. And what is this practice about baptized or being baptized for the benefit of someone else who is dead? What is that? Okay. So what is this baptism for the dead? First thing we want to see, ask ourselves is, is this a biblical practice or not? That's the first question we ask ourselves. Is this biblical or is this not biblical? A living person is baptized on behalf of a dead person. Obviously to secure something. To gain something. For the apostle, in verse 29, the resurrection of the dead. Right? So it represents a profession of faith that is made by a living person on behalf of a dead person. To represent the dead person's faith. Or baptism, if you like. People have died, perhaps, 
but they haven't been baptized, so somebody gets baptized on their behalf. Or they have not had the opportunity, relations, family members, to believe the gospel. They died, so now there's a baptism that perhaps can take place on their behalf. And they therefore are saved, or they therefore are guaranteed faith to secure eternal life. I think the first thing we can say about this practice is that it's completely unbiblical. It's completely unbiblical, right? Why? Why is it unbiblical? Because there's no other scripture anywhere in the Bible, Old Testament and of course the New Testament, that supports such a practice. You won't read about it anywhere else. You won't cover it anywhere else. In fact, the New Testament is absolutely plain in its teaching about salvation and about baptism. No person can be saved and no person will ever be saved because someone else is baptized on their behalf. That's it. New Testament does not teach the practice of baptizing someone on behalf of a dead person. By the way, not only that statement, all right, that no person can or will be saved because someone else is baptized for them, but baptism itself is not a requirement for salvation. Only faith is a requirement for salvation. We're not justified by faith plus baptism. We all recognize that baptism is simply a confession, a profession of what we already believe. It's a statement, if I can put it like that, a testimony to people who observe baptism that that person is saying, I belong to Christ Jesus. That's all it is in its very simple form. It's an identity, an identification. Baptism is not a requirement to be saved. You don't get baptized and you're saved. It's not the New Testament teaching, but baptism is the fruit of your confession or salvation. In other words, there's no such thing as a proxy faith. And there's no such thing as a proxy baptism. Okay, I can't believe on your behalf. And you can't believe on my behalf. And you can't be baptized on my behalf, and I can't be baptized on your behalf. The New Testament does not teach that. Your faith is your faith. Your baptism is your baptism, and likewise mine. So it is not, I think, we can say, without looking into all the passages, but from those simple theological, biblical statements, that this baptism by proxy, or baptism on behalf of the dead, is not a New Testament teaching. That's the first thing. Not taught in the Scriptures. So how do we explain it, right? The second thing we must do is we take the verse. Now here's what you have to do. You take verse 29 as you find it in its context. So what is the verse? And what is the context? Well, the context, verse 12 through 34, the question, right? Verse 12, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the context. That's what Paul's answering. So, the context is the resurrection of the dead. So this verse 29, or this practice, is used by Paul in keeping within that context. In other words, here's his arguing. If there is no resurrection of the dead from verse 12, then why would anybody ever do verse 29? Okay, in other words, you're, people are only doing verse 29 because they anticipate some resurrection of the dead. Now he's not saying that verse 29 is a biblical practice, but he says people are engaging in that practice in the hopes of 
that person who has already died experiencing something later on. All Paul is doing is using it to answer verse 12. In other words, if there's no resurrection, verse 12, then why would you ever do, why would anybody ever think about doing verse 29? That leads to the third point. So who was doing this, right? Who was engaging in this baptism for the dead practice? Because that's what it is. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, why would you do that? Right? It's a simple statement. It's quite easy to understand in the context. But let's ask us, why would people do this practice? Now, let's face the facts. The Corinthians live in pagan times. Right? There are a lot of mystery religions out there. There's no question about it. In fact, the Corinthians themselves were pagans before Christ. They believed all kinds of things. I mean, there are temples in their city where they worship gods, false idols. So the Corinthians are very familiar with pagan religions, with mystery religions. Sometimes if you watch a television documentary, I've seen a few of them, uh, like the island of Crete, for example. You, you watch a beautiful documentary on the island of Crete, which is marvelous, and all the archaeological discoveries reveal that there was some, some ungodly pagan religion that took place on the island of Crete. Guess who went to the island of Crete? The Apostle Paul, right? Spent a short time waiting on his way to Rome, but he sent Titus back there, and Titus spent time on the island of Crete. In fact, the epistle to Titus is all about Crete and what takes place on the island of Crete. It's full of mystery religions. So these are, these are people in the first century who are so uh, connected to understand mystery and false religions, pagan religions, but now they've become saved. And so all of that knowledge is not just gone, but it's, it's around them. It's their culture. It's part of their lives. So the Corinthians are the same. They're, they're, everywhere they go out, if they open their front door, there's, there's pagan religion all around them. So they're very familiar with pagan religions and so on. Now there's a little city called Eleusis, which is very near Corinth, and opposite the Isle of Salamis. And there, in Eleusis, there is this center for mystery religions that both Homer and Cicero speak of the practice of these mystery religions, which were like a cult washing, or a cult baptism, if you like. You could participate in cult washings on behalf of someone who had died. That is pagan religion. That was out there. The Corinthians are familiar with that kind of thing and those practices. In fact, this is what the Mormons engage in. Right? They, living people, get baptized on behalf of a dead person. Right? to secure either their salvation or to guarantee that they are in the faith. But Paul is not giving us verse 29 as permission for the practice. Paul is not advocating the practice. There's nowhere else in the New Testament. And not only that, he's only using it as an argument to demonstrate if there is no resurrection of the dead, why would people do this practice? So he's saying that even the pagan religions give some evidence that there is a resurrection of the dead, whatever that meant for them in the afterlife and so on. So we confess this morning that if there is no resurrection of the dead, right, then this practice that Paul says is happening, right, 
may even be believed by some of the Corinthians themselves that this practice is a complete waste of time. You would never engage in it either, he says, if the dead didn't rise. So my point is, verse 29 has no biblical support anywhere else in the New Testament regarding faith or regarding baptism uh, in terms of the practice for a Christian or for a church. So you'll notice we don't baptize on behalf of the dead. Why? Because the Bible doesn't teach it. We would only want to do what Scripture teaches. Nothing less and nothing more, right? So notice, just from that off-the-cut cuff, I should say, statement of verse 29, reflecting a practice that was maybe done by some Corinthians, but certainly is familiar to the religions around the ancient world, Paul turns to himself. Look at verse 30. And now again, same, the same question has been answered. He says, why are we in danger every hour? And you could add, why am I, or why are we in danger every hour if the dead are not raised? Verse 12, right? That's how you must think. Why, why am I facing danger if the dead don't rise? Why am I putting my life on the line every day, placing myself in danger every day if the dead are not going to be raised? Well, Paul, I'd be, you know, I'd be actually quite happy to stop right there and say, you, you got me. Why would I do that? Why would anyone do that? Why would you put your life on the line if your hope is resurrection and there's no resurrection? You wouldn't do it, would you? You wouldn't do it. So, in fact, Paul says, is essentially saying, I'd be a fool to do that if there was no resurrection from the dead. And he says, notice verse 31, that personally he dies every day. It's as if his life is out there every day and it could be, could be taken from him. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, because he's the instrument of their salvation. That's why he's protesting. He says, I die every day. I put my life on the line to minister the gospel to you, part of which is Jesus is risen from the dead and the anticipation of Christ being raised from the dead is your resurrection. Why would I suffer all these things if that's not true? Right? So why would Paul do this if there's no resurrection? Why face death every day? Why put your life on the line? Why be in jeopardy every day if there's no such thing as the resurrection? In fact... Wouldn't Paul be the greatest deceiver of all? If he actually, if there is no resurrection and he's going around saying there is a resurrection and it's not going to happen, and yet he's suffering all these things, he'd have deceived people. Because he's actually preached, hasn't he? That there is a resurrection. He's actually said, Jesus is raised from the dead and the dead are raised. How can any of you say, verse 12, that there is no resurrection of the dead? So the Apostle Paul has actually been proclaiming and preaching this doctrine. And so, of course, there must be some connection between the doctrine and how you live, Paul, every day. I die every day. I put my life on the line every day because I believe there is this resurrection of the dead. And he rejoices over the Corinthians, right? That they've believed the same thing as he has. They've believed this gospel. So he rejoices over them. If there's no resurrection, that would be to no avail. A waste of time. Why stay in Corinth for 18 months? Why spend all three years in Ephesus? Why do all these things if there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead? No, dear congregation, listen, your practice tomorrow at work 
in your daily job is predicated on the fact that one day you rise from the dead. Because that is what motivates you tomorrow in this life to share the gospel and to put up with suffering. To actually suffer for the faith because you know where it's going. So this is a doctrine that gives you courage in suffering times, in hardship times. Why go through all the suffering if that's not true? But because it is true, you're prepared to suffer these things for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. So foolish thinking, like there is no resurrection of the dead, as verse 12 indicates. The stakes are too high for such thinking, Paul says. So notice this verse 32 then. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? What is he talking about? Well, certainly, the first century, they had arenas, and in those arenas they had games and wild beasts. Even Nero took pleasure in dressing up Christians in sacks and putting tar on them, and then setting them on fire, and then having beasts also attack them and kill them. That's suffering. Who's willing to go into a Roman arena or an Ephesian arena and subject themselves to wild beasts if there's no hope for you to come? Who's going to do that, right? So he says here, what have I gained if I got into an arena and fought wild beasts? That's the picture he paints, right? If there's no resurrection of the dead. Who would do that? You'd have to be a madman to do such a thing, right? Now, it's highly unlikely that the Apostle Paul, being a Roman citizen, would ever have been subject to literal wild beasts in an arena. That's not how Roman citizens died. So I think Paul's speaking figuratively. He's speaking about the opposition he receives all the time. He probably means being exposed to the rage of the wicked and the unbelieving. And you remember, certainly from Acts chapter 19, there was a mob in Ephesus, right? That, that had, was fed up with the trade being taken away and the, the gospel having so much success. That there was this mob scene. The rage of the mob. You remember how Paul's friends actually prevented him from going in there and trying to talk to the crowd. Wouldn't let him go in because he'd have been torn to pieces. I think maybe perhaps that's what he's referring to. Or he might even be thinking of the Judaizers who traveled around following after Paul and, and diminishing his gospel and changing his gospel. And Paul had to contend with that and live with that. Constant opposition to him. Why would Paul place himself in such a circumstance or circumstances if there's no such thing as the resurrection. Perhaps this is the most powerful argument in all the arguments for the resurrection of the dead. You are willing to put your life on the line because you believe Jesus rose from the dead and you also believe as a consequence of that you yourself will rise from the dead. Or to put it another way, this gospel is true. And you believe this gospel is the truth. So, why would Paul do this if there's no resurrection from the dead or of the dead? Well, let's see, the facts are, there is a resurrection of the dead and that's why he does it. And that's why he's willing to do it. Now, you know, the one thing I know about Paul is that he really suffered. 
I want to show you that. So let's go to 2 Corinthians, okay? So we'll start in chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. By Asia, he means Ephesus and those regions, right? Asia Minor. We don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see it? So Paul says, I'm willing to bear the sentence of death because it makes me not rely on myself, but on God who's going to do something. Give life to the dead, right? He delivered, verse 10, us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. And you must pray, He says, verse 11, help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Wow. Now go to chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse 1. Working, verse 1, chapter 6, working together with Him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for He says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Wow. How does Paul commend himself as a servant of Jesus? By his sufferings. By his sufferings. That this grace that has changed his life would change their lives. Okay, now go to chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul's actually doesn't want to reveal this stuff. So he's holding back, but he says in verse 23, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Are they servants? Sorry, uh, I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many, a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city in Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped 
his hands. Would you do any of that if there was no resurrection? Of course not. Would you put yourself through what the Apostle Paul went through in even a tenth of what he experienced if there was no resurrection? You wouldn't do it. What would you do? You would do verse 33. If you, you would eat and drink because tomorrow you die and that's the end of life. You don't have to worry about a thing. So you might as well live for today, right? Now listen, if you reject the gospel, if you deny the resurrection of the dead, what Paul is saying, if you say there's no salvation, then you might as well be reckless in your life. You might as well live to please yourself to the utmost gratification. And that is exactly what the unbelieving world does. That is exactly what your colleagues at work tomorrow think and do. That is a sorrowful position, isn't it? Should not we feel pain, anguish, that there are thousands who are perishing every day, who have no hope in life, see no hope in life, nothing in the future for them, so might as well live life to the full, do what I please, eat and drink, because tomorrow I die. What is life? See, they have no purpose in life. Is it not true then that the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead in the future is what gives you purpose in life? That you are prepared to put up with suffering, that you are prepared to bear shame and opposition for the sake of Jesus because Jesus himself rose from the dead and you too shall rise. If that's not true, who would go through such things that Paul says he went through? So the world is in a sad state, isn't it? The wicked, the pagan, the unbeliever, no hope, no future. And they seem to recognize that. They seem to know that. They live like that. That's why they give themselves to eating and drinking and parties and all of that. They abandon themselves to all manner of sin because it doesn't matter in their eyes. And therefore, Romans chapter 1 is fulfilled in them. They give themselves to sin and God says, give yourselves then to sin. And be filled with it. And then my judgment will come. This is a sad condition, dear brothers and sisters. You know, we are very secluded, aren't we, in our Christian community? We are very protected in our Christian fellowship with each other. We're protected from the world. We engage and live in the world. And yes, they do that, but I don't do that. And I carry on my merry way. No, you should be praying for them. Concerned about them. No, we separate from the world as believers in the church. This is the, world. the church is not the world. But we live in the world. We work in the world. We engage with the unbelieving who have no hope, no sense of it, but know that there's nothing for them. So they abandon themselves. Would it not be worthwhile to say something once in a while about that? Or to live your life in such a way that they want to know why you're different to them? Right? Ah, you know, the world, like the first Corinthians, the, the world in the first century for the Corinthians is filled with all kinds of Epicurean philosophies. Do you know what we mean by Epicurean philosophies? Two things. Number one, pursue pleasure. Number two, avoid pain. Now, Paul doesn't pursue pleasure and he has pain. 
So, the Epicurean philosophies of the ancient world are, are since you're going to die tomorrow, you might as well abandon everything and pursue your own pleasure, gratify your lusts, satisfy yourself, but do it so that you don't have to engage in pain. We don't want any pain, right? That's why Paul quotes what he does. He quotes Isaiah 22.13. Here. Do not be deceived. Sorry. Uh, verse uh, 32. At the end. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. Isaiah says, In that day the Lord God called for weeping and mourning, for boldness and wearing of sackcloth. And behold, there was joy and gladness and killing of oxen and slaughtering of sheep and eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, they said, because tomorrow we die. That was Israel's or Judah's philosophy. God wants mourning. God wants grieving. But no, they're going to have a party. and Do their thing. You see, the one thing about pleasure, it always dulls pain for just a moment. But pain doesn't go away. It, but it offers pleasure, no hope for the future. It only offers pleasure for the moment. For right now. Then it's gone. And haven't we as Christians even discovered that if you are seeking pleasure by the world or by some sin or something, you discover that immediately when you commit that sin that you are guilty. And you feel it. You feel the pain of it. Because pleasure is but for a moment. Pain is always. And the pain of conscience and the pain of mind and the pain of heart, that's what the world lives with every day. And it's darkness to them. There's no light, no end of the tunnel, no hope, nothing. What a privilege every Christian has by virtue of Jesus rising from the dead. That you have hope, and I have hope, to be different. To live a different life, right? It's only the resurrection that does that for me. Because that's the hope of every believer, right? So I want to ask myself, okay, so how can I not be like this? Eat and drink and tomorrow I die. Look what Paul says. Here it is. Number one, he says, don't be deceived, verse 33. He says, do not be deceived. It's a statement that he makes. Why does he make that statement? Evil is contagious. Sin spreads, right? It goes from bad to worse. Now, you know, the thing about a sinful habit is that it gets stronger and harder to break as time goes on. The longer you engage in sinful practices and sinful habits, the harder and more difficult it is to say no and to break and to do away with it. So Paul says here, look, don't be deceived. We are living in light of the resurrection of that which is before us. Don't be deceived in this present world to yield yourself to sin and its pleasures because it will kill you in the end. It leads to the wrath of God. It leads to judgment and so on. So that's the first thing. He says, don't be deceived. Second thing he says, since sinful habits become more difficult to break and so on, and evil is contagious, he says, he says bad company ruins good morals. What do you mean, Paul? He means don't associate with people like that, who say, I'm going to eat and I'm going to drink because tomorrow I die. Why not? Because that kind of company leads to ruin, Right? It ruins what you believe and what you have. Now, many believe Paul is quoting a Greek poet here, the poet Menander, who wrote a comedy 
And in that comedy, he talked about these things. Bad company ruins good morals. That is a common sense statement. Anybody would recognize that, right? If you gather with certain people, you become like them. Isn't that Psalm uh, 115 and Psalm 135? Those who make idols become like them. You want to associate with sin or the world? You become like the world. So Paul says, look, Bad company ruins good morals. Now, if he's quoting a, a poet, it's probably true that the Corinthians are familiar with this, this little bad company ruins good morals. Paul says, stay away from that company. It's deadly. It leads to the ruin of your life. You see, fellowship with the world is what we call spiritual compromise, Right? So when we fellowship with the world, we compromise ourselves spiritually, we lose ourselves effectively in witness, and the gospel is brought into shame and disrepute. And Jesus is dishonored. If you live like that, right? Paul says, uh uh don't do that. Thirdly, he says, don't carry on And persist if you're like this. Look at verse 34. Here's the solution. Wake up from your drunken stupor, he says. As is right, you should wake up in the light of what I'm telling you, he says. What does he mean by wake up? Stop sinning. Wake up so that you shake off sin's deceptions and sin's delusions. I like how Luther put it. Luther says, wake right up. Wake right up, or to put it another way, wake up to righteousness. Wake up to holiness. Wake up to godliness. You believe that there is a resurrection that is to come that has an impact or an influence on you right now. What should you be in light of your hope for the resurrection? You should wake up and be godly, be righteous. Wake right up is how Luther put it. Wake up to righteousness is what he means. So Paul says, look, be spiritually vigilant, right? You read this, by the way. The Lord Jesus said this often, right? Guard yourselves, keep awake, stay alert. You read these little injunctions to be like that. Paul says the same here, wake up. He means to be spiritually vigilant. In other words, how can I be spiritually vigilant? Number one, don't compromise yourself. Number two, don't contaminate yourself. That's what Paul says. Bad company ruins So don't contaminate your life. Don't compromise your life. Watch who your companions are and watch your conversations. Because there's deadly stuff out there. Now Paul doesn't mean, look, the world is so bad you've got to come out of it. He knows the world's bad. We live in the world. We work in the world. He's not saying, take yourself out of the world and you'll be okay. Because you all know you can go and hide in a cave and your mind will do all kinds of things to you. Sin will just come out. You can't hide from it. You can't hide from the world. But what he means is you don't contaminate yourself with the world, the things they do. You don't join with them. You don't yield to them. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, God says, Come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord, and be my people. Separation is what defines who God's people are. And since we have these great promises that God will be our God and we shall be His people, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the flesh. 
That's what he's saying. That's what Paul's saying, right? The consequence of the resurrection and our hope for the resurrection is practical today. How's your practice? Today. That's Paul's point, right? And look how he says in verse 34, Some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. If you had any knowledge of God, he says, you would believe in the resurrection of the dead and your life would reflect that. Your practice in life would show that. You would live in the hope of it and in the light of it. So I find incredible spiritual motivation from this doctrine that we all take for granted because we're Christians. Of course, there's going to be a resurrection because Jesus rose. Yeah, it's true. But that's just a doctrine in one sense. What does the doctrine do? Isn't all doctrine supposed to generate practice? That's what it must do. If I believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that must do something in my life. Every doctrine in Scripture is designed by God to, for you and me to live and to practice. Not just to have some hypothetical knowledge of it, but to live it and to see how it infiltrates my life and can be developed and practiced. And that's what Paul is saying here. There are some in Corinth, he says, who are there and they have no knowledge of God. Oh dear congregation, here we are every week, week by week by week, here we are reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, but do you really, do we all have a knowledge of God? The Lord Jesus said in His high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, that eternal life is to know God. And to know God, if you put it the other way, is eternal life. To have this knowledge of God Himself. So whatever people believe, that is what they practice. And that is how they live. And that applies, by the way, to all deviations of the Gospel and from the Gospel, and all denials of the Gospel. So to deny the resurrection, like verse 12, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? That, for Paul, means you are going to live in a certain way, and it might be that verse 34 is true of you, you actually have no knowledge of God. I say that to your shame, he says, because you should know better. So the resurrection is essential to the gospel, right? Without this resurrection, there is no gospel. All errors of all kinds reflect an incorrect knowledge of God. And let me tell you something about knowledge. It is knowledge that motivates your heart. Because what you know is what you do and live. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's, how, that's who you are, as you think and work around your knowledge. So Paul's final proof, right, in verses 12 through 34, is that I have put my life on the line for Jesus' sake. This is my final proof in the resurrection of the dead. I would not do that if there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. But I have put my life, everybody knows it, and we know it, we've read about it, he suffered for Jesus. And that's what you might be called to do and I might be called to do, to prove that our faith is in the risen Christ and we anticipate Him gathering us to Himself to be like Him in the final end, right? So when I look at this passage, Paul has answered the question of verse 12. He's answered the question. It's a beautiful argument, right? So let me close with three things. Number one, life has purpose and life has meaning for every Christian. Sometimes you feel like there's no purpose. Sometimes you feel like you're going nowhere. 
I want to assure you this morning, in the light of what Paul says here, that there is purpose and meaning for every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we do not live just for today, but we live for tomorrow, and we live for that great day when Jesus shall come and take us to Himself. Life has purpose. Life has meaning. Right? So verse 19 is not true of us. We don't only have hope in this life only. No, we have hope in that life because Jesus, and we have hope in Jesus. That's the first thing. Second, we live unto God for His glory, right? That's what we're supposed to do every day. You do your daily work to glorify God. That's what the Scriptures tell us. In other words, you're aiming with your life to fulfill verse 28, which is the end. Verse 28, that God may be all in all. You see, how you live your life is all part of the plan and purpose of God under Christ that Jesus is making subject to Himself, even His people, so that ultimately, one day, when we are presented to the Father, God gets all the glory. So verse 28 is right. So that God might be all in all. That's what I must aim at, the glory of God. Thirdly, this life then is worth all the suffering. Whatever that might be that comes your way, this life is worth all of that for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did it. Paul did it. And his people must do it to be like their Savior, to be like their Lord, because it promises an anticipation of knowing God and the fulfillment of that is so glorious and beautiful and wonderful because you will be like the Savior. You will be like Christ. You see, likeness to Jesus only comes when Jesus comes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great 1 Corinthians 15 passage so far that we've been considering together. What hope, what encouragement it gives to each of us. Help each one of us as we go about our day-to-day -day life, as we face opposition. And it can be faced in the home, it can be faced in the workplace, it can be faced anywhere and everywhere, because we are Christians. Help us to be cognizant, to realize that that could happen to us at any moment. And yet to live in the light of the hope that we have that Jesus shall come for us no matter what we may go through here on earth. So prepare us for glory so that you may be all in all. Thank you for your word. Bless it to us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.